This is The Guardian. Today, how the fashion industry hid allegations of sexual assault for decades. Before we start, a warning that we discuss rape and mention suicide in this episode. It was October 2020, and Lucy Osborne, a reporter with The Guardian, had just got an email from someone she wasn't expecting. Good morning. Hi, Marianne. Can you hear me okay? Yes, I hear you fine. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, I can. Great. Marianne Shine had worked as a model in the 1980s. Um, I worked in a modeling agency called Legends and Mannequins. She'd just been reading Lucy's article in which eight women alleged they'd been sexually assaulted or raped by the French modeling boss Gerald Marie while they were signed to his agency. Allegations Marie has categorically denied. When Marianne read about their experiences, it brought back painful memories of what had happened to her in Paris. It was 1986, but certain events in one's life, doesn't matter when it happens, it can just stay there mm. vividly in your mind. Mm. Um, Marianne then spoke to Lucy on the phone. Later, your article came out, I'm like, all right, I'm going to start telling people. Mm. And for the first time, she said she was ready to tell a journalist that she had been sexually assaulted too by another leading fashion agent, a man called Jean-Luc Brunel. At the time, I wondered if you knew that it was happening to other girls as well. No, absolutely didn't at all. When this thing happened to me, I felt like I couldn't tell anybody. So I really felt alone. Mm. I thought it was unique to me. It wasn't. Marianne is one of six women to go on the record and speak to Lucy about being abused by Brunel. Once I started reporting on it in The Guardian, I was just contacted by so many models that had such similar stories and and whose lives had just been so impacted by this. And in recent years, they've not only realised that they weren't the only ones to have experienced this behaviour, they're also reading in the news today that they were part of something so much bigger. Just uh, when we thought we'd heard the last of Jeffrey Epstein, we get another reminder of the horrors he committed against young women and girls. Brunel was friends with Jeffrey Epstein, and it's alleged he supplied over a thousand young women and teenagers to the convicted paedophile. Lucy's investigation into Jean-Luc Brunel and the system of abuse that operated around him in the fashion industry has taken months of work. From The Guardian, I'm Hannah Moore. Today in Focus, breaking the silence on Brunel, Epstein, and sexual assault in the fashion industry. Marianne, you started your modelling career in 1985. What was it about that job, or at least the idea of that job, that appealed to you? So I had just graduated from college, and I was going to go to grad school, and that cost a fair bit of money. And it became really apparent very quickly that the money I was making at the local Haagen-Dazs scooping ice cream was not going to get my goals met. And 
my father actually picked up some man on the street on Fifth Avenue one day, very rainy day, and he felt sorry for this man that was getting drenched, and it turned out he was a fashion photographer. And my dad said, oh, I have a beautiful daughter. I think she could model. And I was horrified. I was like, Dad, I worked on my brain, <laughs> you know? And he goes, just do me a favor, you know, he... He was so shocked that I gave him a ride that he was willing to meet with you. So I called up this photographer. His name was Mitchell Gray. And I thought, okay, what the heck? And I met with him and he said, I'll tell you in five minutes if you have a chance. And I walk in the door and he was like, I had no idea that your father, this little round Hungarian man, would have this tall blonde daughter. <laughs> and we got on great. And he said, I think you can make a lot of money and have some fun with this. I can't believe the happenstance of that. Yeah, crazy story. But that was just who my dad was, you know. And I ended up having a full day shoot with makeup artists and, you know, music and lights and the whole thing. It was amazing. And I got out of there with about a dozen really beautiful different looks. Although Marianne hadn't intended to go into modelling, she was encouraged by that first shoot. And not long afterwards, she got scouted and travelled to Paris to start building her career. Évidemment, avec les maillots, ces inévitables petits chapeaux dont les Anglais ont le secret. In the 80s, that was the place to be if you really wanted to succeed in fashion. Marianne was heading for one of the top agencies, Prestige. In the booking room, they had this big table and the walls were filled of covers from magazines and so you were constantly seeing Elle and Vogue and Mary Claire and being tempted like that's the goal that's where you will be so that was my impression I got accepted into this agency really quickly and I'm going to help make them money and I'm going to build a career but Marianne was in a precarious position she had no formal contract and no legal right to work in France either the agency took her passport off her and she realised that her age, 22, put her at a disadvantage in comparison to most of the other models who were in their teens. So she lied and said she was 17. When the boss of Prestige, a notorious power player called Claude Haddad, found out, he seemed furious. Um, he would cut me off. OK, I'm reading here. Um... In that first call you had with Lucy... You were reading from the journal that you kept at that time. Mm. And you describe how Claude Haddad would talk about your age and your body. You're not bouncy and jolly the way a regular 16-year-old is, is what he told me. You, and, you um, put, and you put this in your diary? Yeah. He said, you're 22 and you don't need my help. You're a motherfucker now. You're a mature woman and you don't like to listen to me, so I can no longer change you. I only hug and kiss the young 16-year-olds and take them out to dinners because they are innocent and do not know anyone or anything. Uh, there was one moment I just remember standing in his office. He called me in. He was talking to two, I don't know if they were magazine or who they were or whatever they were. They were in his office. He was mm. trying to convince them to use our models. And I came in and he pulls my big turtleneck down to show my cleavage. And he said, you're hiding this body behind these bulky clothes, um, be more sexy. And then he heights my skirt up and pats me on the ass and then he pulls my oh, top down gosh. right in front of these two people. I didn't know who they were. I, I just remember being frozen in that moment, just yeah. stunned that somebody could oh, touch me like that and treat me like that. What did that make you feel? I mean, well, about it was... being in that agency and about being in the industry more broadly? 
I felt like a piece of meat. It was just so absolutely humiliating. Mm. Um, so I was like, hmm, I don't think I want to be here anymore. <laughs> and that's how I left. I just sort of slipped out and then moved on to what I thought would be a better place. So that's how you ended up at another top agency, Karen Models, which was headed up by a man called Jean-Luc Brunel. (laughs) Yeah, out of the pan into the fire, right? Lucy Osborne, you spent years reporting on abuse in the modelling industry, including most recently about the allegations against Jean-Luc Brunel, all of which has now been made into a three-part documentary for Sky. What can you tell me about Brunel? What kind of status did he have in the industry? Brunel's career took off in the late 70s when he became head of Karen Modelling Agency. And it was this time when the industry was sort of booming. There was the emergence of the supermodel, models of celebrities, and model agents were sort of at the heart of everything in the fashion industry. And Brunel was really one of the leading figures. He claims that he discovered the Danish supermodel Herna Christensen and helped launch the career of Christy Turlington and, and others. He could pick and choose which, which models were going to make it and which ones weren't. He was famous for, for having his own table at the infamous Bandouche nightclub in Paris. Think Studio 54, bowls of cocaine... Club goers ending up in the club's mosaic tiled pool at the end of the night in their underwear. It was the place to be at the time. And Brunel was right there in the centre of it, surrounded by his models. At the clubs, we would show up sometimes and he wouldn't be there yet. But when he did, then it was like, okay, there would be a rush of people going to his table and all the bottles of liquor would be brought out so we wouldn't have to pay for our drinks ever. And we would get in for free that we would be recognized and we just cut the long lines, you know, the long velvet rope lines of people waiting to get in and we just walk right up to the door and they'd be like, oh, yes, you're with Jean-Luc and you go. And what kind of atmosphere had he created at the agency? I just remember there was always a buzz on there. There was just so much activity, so many phones ringing, lots of cigarette smoke. Mm. <laughs> and Jean-Luc Brunel was a very, um, I would say, agitated man. His eyes were always darting around. He didn't stand still. What was he saying to you at that time about what he had planned for your career? He's telling me I have this potential to be, you know, a a supermodel and I have what it takes. And then when uh, I had finally gotten to the point where I was being invited to the dinners, then I was in the inner circle. That's where it got exciting. As well as holding courts in Paris's most notorious nightclubs, Brunel would also invite his favourite models to lavish dinners or parties in his own apartment. Um, One time he invited a group of us to dinner at his house. It was just a bunch of models and we're having a fun time. And then he said, "Okay, we get to watch my interview. And he had a big TV and it was in his bedroom. And he invited us all to sit on his bed. And there was one girl in particular, this young American model, that looked pretty drained and exhausted and she was clinging on to him and and he kept ignoring her and untangling her from around his neck and you could tell that he was checking out the other women in the room and she was sort of desperately hanging on him oh my god sorry just to take a pause here he's the boss of all of these people and he's 
created a situation where he is sitting with them in his bedroom on his bed. Yes. And how was he justifying that? That, oh, come and watch this video that I am in and I want you guys to see it. Right. And the screening has to be on his bed in his bedroom. And I mean, we're we're referring to these models as women, but obviously some of them were just teenagers. Oh, absolutely. The majority of them were young teenagers. How young would you say like the youngest of these women would have been? Maybe 14. Wow. And I think I just didn't sit on the bed. I sat on the floor and there were a couple of girls who sat on the floor too, but I I think that that's not what he wanted. He wanted us all to cuddle him like a harem. And it was after one of those dinners, sometime in the spring of 1986, that Jean-Luc assaulted you. And I've heard the tape of you describing to Lucy what happened. And do do, do you feel comfortable telling me more about the night of the the incident? Yeah, I can tell you. Um... So it's incredibly difficult to listen to and I imagine even harder to talk about. So we're not going to ask you to repeat that again today, but we are going to play a section of that call. So what I remember about that night was I showed up by myself and it was an intimate gathering. And then he had these businessmen that seemed to leave with other girls I was looking at the clock and I said, I need to leave. And he kept saying, don't leave, don't leave. And I said, well, the metro stops running. I have to go. And he kept saying, no, no, Marianne, you have to stay. And uh, I'll have my cook drive you home. And um, I said, oh, okay, great. So then I stayed longer. Mm. And then finally there was fewer and fewer people left. And I really need to leave now. And he goes, oh, what a shame. The cook is gone. Mm. I said, well, can you call, get me a cab then? And he said, no, 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 it's too late. It's not safe for you to go. Here, uh, why don't you sleep on my couch? And he brought out a pillow and a blanket mm-hmm. and a, a, one of his T-shirts for me to sleep in. And I said, I really don't feel comfortable. And then the British model said, oh, Marianne, it's totally fine. I sleep here all the time whenever I come to town. I was like, okay. But it was not what my gut wanted to do. You're a fast typist. Yeah, can you hear it? Sorry, it's... Um... Yeah, you're good. Um, All right, so then um, everyone left, and then Mm. he went to bed. So then I went to sleep, and then in the wee hours of the morning, um, I woke up, and he's sitting there across from me in this armchair in in a silk robe, and he said, you really shouldn't be sleeping out here. You should come sleep in my bed. And I said, no, (laughs) absolutely no. And he said, oh, come on. He kept working it and working it. And I said, "And I said, no, 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 I'm fine here. And I rolled over and I went back to sleep. Mm. And then he came back again later and he stood over me and he tapped me on the shoulder and he said, I'll tell you what, I will sleep on the couch. You take my bed. And that was the moment I look back on and go, why the frick did I do that? Um, but he seemed generally concerned with me. Like, he's like, no, 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 you really need to get the good beauty rest he kept saying beauty rest you need your beauty rest (sighs) so I said all right and I remember going in there and feeling um really uncomfortable and then he left and I was like all right maybe he really will stay out there this is good and then I fell deep asleep and then 
um, somewhere around five in the morning, I wake up and he's literally on top of me, stark naked, trying to push into me. Mm-hmm. And luckily, I still had panties on. And I was just in absolute shock and delirious from being in the deep sleep and then realizing where I was and what was happening. And I was like, mm-hmm. oh, my God. And then he, and this is the part that's really hard for me to say. Mm-hmm. Um, he was... He whispered in my ear, he goes, you don't have to kiss me. And he said it repeatedly, you don't have to kiss me. You don't have to kiss me. And my whole body was like, I cannot believe what an idiot. Like, I can't believe this man's doing this to me. I should never have come here. I should have left, you know. And realizing that I'm not getting out of this one. And I'd got out of a lot of sticky situations in my past, but this one. Mm. It was too. It was too far on, you know, too far gone. Yeah. You know, when you picked up the phone to have that conversation with Lucy to talk about what had happened to you, it was the first time that you'd told a journalist. What was it like making that phone call to her? Yeah, it was. Uh... On one level, I feel like I, I relive it when I tell the story. Uh, on another, it's very um, cathartic to actually not have it live in my body anymore and be able to sh- say it out loud. But there was a piece to it that, Hannah, that I really want to share, that the sexualization of a model, there, I can't tell you how many shoots I was on in fashion shows where the photographer or the designer would just feel like it was expected of you to put out, oh yes, we had a fun shoot, so now we're going to fuck. And became this thing that kept happening, but it never ever dawned on me that my own agent would cross that line. Especially after whining and dining me uh, for a few months and you know getting me really nice jobs and really feeling like I'm... I'm stepping up. Mm. And the impression I get from the way you describe him in comparison to Haddad is that Haddad was this kind of like big, bolshy character and he was there pulling your clothes off, whereas it sounded like Brunel presented himself as a as a more understanding, slightly more gentle character and kind of won people's trust in that way. Yeah, and that made him an extreme sexual predator, like a master when did you next see Jean-Luc after that night? <laughs> that was a Saturday night. And um, Monday morning, I went straight into the agency. And my booker wouldn't even make eye contact with me. And I had to walk all the way up to her and tap her on the shoulder. And she was on the phone. And then she put her hand over the phone. And she looked at me. And she was, I cannot be seen talking to you. Go away. You need to go away immediately or I could be fired. I said, but I have to tell you what happened. She goes, don't talk to me. And Jean-Luc was in his office and the door was was slightly open. I could see him in there on the phone and I just barged in there. And he came from around the desk and came up to me and he says, you must leave immediately. You must leave. And I said, but what, what you did, you know, what happened and why, why did you do that? And he goes, if you don't leave right now, I'm calling the police. And I'm like, what? And he goes, you're out of here. You're done. You're fired. Did you ever think about reporting him to the police? 
I was so afraid that I would be arrested and deported. I didn't have working papers, and if I reported him, who knows, maybe I would never work again as a model. I think nearly everyone that I, I've spoken to for this has said that their careers were impacted. If they stood up to him or if they didn't do as they were told, Courtney, another of the women who I've spoken to, she says that, that Brunel, uh, to sort of punish her for, for refusing his advances, she'd be sent to, to the hairdresser and have all her hair chopped off and dyed orange. Leandra, one of the others, she says that, that he would, you know, one minute be really pally and, and, and very charming with her and then the next minute he'd be sort of aggressively knocking a cigarette out of her mouth and telling her that that, that wasn't ladylike. He had complete power to just end their careers. Marianne, up until this point, you kept a diary quite avidly. Did you write about what had happened to you that night? <laughs> no. I'm looking at it right now. Let me see. No. I literally, something in me broke that day. <sighs> yeah. I didn't, I didn't pick it up again until June 12th, and my handwriting is so bad. I was, I was so full of shame and I thought, oh, it must be my fault. I must have done something wrong. There must be something so terribly wrong with me. I, I must have asked for this. You truly believed that at the time? Yes, because I was immediately um, exiled. And I was suicidal at that point. Two years later, in 1988, CBS America released a documentary about abuse in the fashion industry called American Girls in Paris. Every week, dozens of young American girls walk off airplanes in Paris, certain that their faces will be the next to beam from the covers of the fashion magazine. The footage of young models sashaying through the city's busy traffic-lined streets and wearing double-breasted, shoulder-padded suits is a pure 1980s vision of glamour. But what the show goes on to reveal is disturbing. She asked to have her voice and face disguised. He gave you a drink? Yes. Lit in silhouette, several models talk in detail about being sexually assaulted by both her dad and Brunel. The next thing you remember was being in this man's bed. Who was he? Do I have to say the name? It was John Luke. But nothing really changed for Brunel. I mean, a, a year later, he, he co-created another agency based in New York. So he actually started business in America. Yeah, and it's notable that he obviously had people around him including women, you know, he, he mobilised women around him to, to give himself legitimacy. Yeah, exactly. And that was how Brunel was able to continue for all these years because too many people were willing to turn a blind eye. And then not, not only did it continue, it, it continued to, to such an extent where he was working with allegedly one of the, 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 the biggest sex traffickers that we've ever known. 
Jeffrey Epstein and Jean-Luc Brunel had a close relationship. They reportedly met through Epstein's girlfriend, Ghislaine Maxwell, who is now, of course, a convicted sex offender. Another arrest connected to the late financier and accused sex trafficker Jeffrey Epstein. And it was because of his connection to Epstein that Jean-Luc Brunel was finally arrested in December 2020 as he was boarding a plane at Paris-Charles-de-Gaulle Airport. By now, Brunel was in his 70s, but he was still working as an agent, a profession which French police suspected had given him cover to rape and traffic underage girls. Between 2000 and 2005, when we see on flight logs that Brunel took at least two dozen flights on Epstein's private jet, the so-called Lolita Express, only a handful of other people, including Ghislaine Maxwell, appear more times in the flight logs. And then by 2005, Brunel had uh, transformed Karen's US division into a new agency called MC Squared with a million dollars worth of of financial help from Epstein. So Epstein was backing Brunel's modelling agency. Yeah. I wanted Brunel to know that he no longer has the power over me. And Virginia Roberts Dufresne, who says she was sex trafficked by Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell when she was a teenager, she's spoken about the connection between Epstein and Brunel, hasn't she? So Virginia Roberts Dufresne alleged in 2014 court filings that MC Squared was it was a cover for sex trafficking. Roberts Dufresne also alleges that she herself was made to have sex with Brunel by Epstein. And the key figure that sort of stands out in, in her testimony is that she alleges that Epstein told her that he had slept with a thousand girls and women that were supplied to him by Brunel. God. Yeah, so so while Epstein and MC Squared denied that they had any business relationship at the time, in a sworn statement, an MC Squared bookkeeper said that Brunel had models as young as 13 living in apartments that were controlled by Epstein in Manhattan. Like, as young as 13? Yeah, and Brunel and Epstein's relationship clearly remained close over the years as well. In, in, in 2006, when the authorities first caught up with Epstein... Um, According to prison logs, Brunel visited him in jail 67 times. Coming up, the women who say they were assaulted by Brunel fight for legal justice and the trial that never was. Marianne, when you heard that Brunel had eventually been arrested, mm. do you remember where you were? Uh, yes, I, I was here at my home um, in California and I felt this huge, huge sense of hope. Finally, this is being acknowledged it felt so validating. Mm. And how long you'd waited for that to come to fruition. I mean, decades. And that led to you giving evidence to the prosecution, which features in the Sky documentary. Hi, can you hear me? Yes, it's Marianne. I'm happy to... And there's this quite extraordinary scene where you're talking to the lawyer with your mum by your side. What was it like doing that? I felt really 
proud that my mom wanted to help support me through this. And the part that I didn't expect was the direct questions that the attorney was asking me. Because I guess that's what they would ask if I went on the stand. They would become extremely graphic. And when she asked the most personal graphic question. Did it try or did it penetrate you actually? And no one, not even my husband, no one has ever, ever asked me that. And I answered and then I saw out of the corner of my eye, my mom collapse next to me and start to cry. And then I lost it. I completely collapsed like a glacier, like there was a piece coming off, a deep, deep cry that really needed to come out for a long, long time. And to see in the documentary, you talk to your mum about it in full for the first time is remarkable because she's in her 90s. Wow. Man, I've never heard all those details. I know, I'm sorry. That's okay, you don't have to be sorry about anything. And then she also was like, why didn't you tell me? You know, why wasn't I a safe enough person for you to tell me? Mm. Like, part of you would want to protect her as well, right? Mm. You're like, I don't want to upset you by telling you this. That's so beautifully said, Hannah. Yes, I did want to protect her. I did want to protect my mom. I didn't want her to know all the gruesome details. Brunel spent 14 months in jail in Paris while he was awaiting trial, charged with raping minors and sexual harassment. All right, let's get to some breaking news out of France, everybody. The Paris prosecutor's office has... Then, in February this year, he was found hanged in his cell. With this suicide um, and and then also Epstein being dead, what does that mean for for survivors? The parallels um, between his death and that of Epstein, who also died by hanging in his jail cell in New York in 2019 while awaiting his own trial for sex trafficking, can't go unnoticed. It was obviously a huge, huge shock to these women discovering that he had allegedly done exactly what Epstein had done. There, there was a lot of hope pinning on this one case. So it was it was crushing because it, it would have been symbolic, I think, for uh, survivors of, of abuse in the fashion industry for, for, for many, many women. Marianne, Brunel, of course, took his life. How did you feel when you heard about that? Oh, I was so outraged. I was in shock. I mean, my biggest disappointment with Jean-Luc's death is that he was not able to go to trial. I believe that a trial would have given an opportunity for other women to step forward and share their stories because there's so much more of us out there and we need to heal. I mean, Jean-Luc may have had his last word, but for us women, it's only just begun. The allegations that we've been talking about against Brunel are all historic, some going back to the 80s. Is there any reason to believe, to hope, that this industry has changed now and that the fashion industry wouldn't be sheltering predators anymore? I have spoken to agents, agents that work then and, and work now, and there are really good agents who genuinely, I believe, genuinely look out for their 
their models and do all they can to protect them. But the industry that that protected Brunel is the same industry that it is today. And many of the systems that were in place that helped enable Brunel's behaviour are are still problems today. The the models are still reporting some of the same um, conditions, some of the same mistreatment. So there are still cases where established agencies are setting models up with meetings with men outside the industry, you know, including celebrities, allegedly celebrities in the UK. And then these men have gone on to behave inappropriately with them. So the agencies are still doing that. And also some of these problems that models face at the time that that help create an environment that allowed abuse to continue is still happening today. So, for example, sort of a lack of transparency around pay. You know, freelance models who are sort of getting sort of trapped in unfair contracts that they don't understand, ending up in a lot of debt to their agency, sometimes forced to do unpaid work. That's still happening. Yeah, and in the past few years, we have seen sexual misconduct allegations come out against prominent figures in the fashion industry. Not just agents, but photographers, Mario Testino and Bruce Weber, who've been accused of sexual abuse, which they've denied. The CEO of Guess is currently facing a lawsuit because former models who worked for the brand say he sexually harassed them. Again, he denies that. And then there's the fashion designer, Alexander Wang, who since 2020 has been facing allegations from at least 11 men who worked with him that he sexually assaulted them. And, you know, he got blacklisted for a while. He denied the allegations. And then he put out a statement saying he regrets acting in a way that caused them harm and promised to set a better example. And in April this year... He staged what was billed as his comeback show and his clothes are being worn again by celebrities. So from the outside, it's quite difficult to see how this industry is dealing with these allegations. It just, it seems like nobody cares enough. Yeah, and it certainly feels that way. And I think that part of the reason that a lot of these women have spoken to me is because Brunel wasn't just this one man operating in this environment. Marianne, you've spoken a lot about the shame that you internalised after what happened to you. How do you feel about that now, decades later? It's still there. There's still some shame, but I also feel that it really wasn't my fault. You know, now I work in a prison. I work with criminals. And I think that when someone is really skilled at manipulating people, they see things in you that you're not even aware of and it's just all part of the grooming and you can identify it these years later as grooming that you were groomed oh absolutely you work as a therapist now and as you say as part of that you're going into prisons and some of the men that you work with have sexually assaulted people what motivates you to do that work what what makes you feel able to do that work (laughs) It might sound too hopeful, but I really 
believe that inside people that there is goodness. And some of the men I work with really do change. And that's what gave me hope with Jean-Luc. I thought, well, maybe he will acknowledge, (laughs) but no. I mean, you know, Jean-Luc's death may have, you know, released him from his obligation of appearing in court or having to admit his wrongs, but I think it speaks even stronger that he needed to go to his grave with lots of secrets. Marianne, thank you so much for talking to us. Yes, thank you, Hannah. And uh, thanks for uh, letting us tell our old stories and hopefully they can help new people. Thank you to Marianne Shine, Lucy Osborne and to all the women who shared their stories with her. You can read Lucy's article at theguardian.com now. And Marianne is one of several women in the new Sky series, which is called Scouting for Girls, Fashion's Darkest Secret, which launches on Sky Documentaries and now on the 24th of June. To anyone who's suffered rape or sexual assault, please know that you're not alone. In the UK, you can call Rape Crisis on 0808. 802-9999. In the US, RAIN offers support. Their number is 800-656-4673. We mentioned suicide in this episode, and I want you to know that Samaritans are available to talk 24 hours a day. Their number is 116-123. Or you can email joe, that's J-O, at samaritans.org. This episode was produced by Rose de la Rabiti and sound designed by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producers are Phil Maynard and Elizabeth Casson. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian. <laughs>